With all the buzz around the word innovation these days, it's easy to overlook the fact that innovation is just good old R&D. Today, we talk about how real innovation starts with real customers and a little bit of good old intuition. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside of Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out more at NineLabs.com. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Design Driven. I'm excited to have uh, my old friend Marty on the show today. He is the head of R&D at Eventbrite. Before that, well, going back in history, let's see, he started a agency in DC called Include, grew that, sold it to Twitter, left Twitter, started a company called Invite, sold that to Eventbrite, which is where he's at now. So uh, Marty, hey man, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, I know it's kind of early there in San Francisco, so thanks for waking up and getting getting the coffee going early. So what's happening at Eventbrite these days? Like, what are you excited about working on? Yeah, so uh, Eventbrite just went IPO uh, or let, end of last year, so they're they're now kind of growing beyond the startup days of where where they started and almost when I started with them. And now it's it, it's thinking about growth and growth in, in new verticals. Or how do we get more into the music industry and then growth internationally? How do we um, you know get into places that we haven't traditionally been in, uh, say like Singapore? And uh, on my side, it's really just thinking about growth beyond uh, the product that we all know and love today. What would Eventbrite look like if it if it wasn't Eventbrite? Uh, you know, if, if it did things that it didn't do. Um, if it was in places that it's never been before, um, just even looking at crazy things like what happened in Fortnite earlier this month, where you know 10 million people get together for a, a music concert. You know, right. what, does, what the heck does that even mean for the future of live events? And so, um, it's not really our mandate to answer that question, but it's it's to ask that question and to go down that path and do that research to figure out um, how we might get close to kind of predicting the future to what best degree we could. Yeah, I think you just hit on something that's central to um, a lot of the conversations we have on the show, which is it's not essential that you answer the question. It's essential that you ask the question, which kind of gets back into, you know, like, who are you designing for and how do you make something that's valuable to them? Yeah, that, that, that's what we get most excited is we find that most conversations will derail when we try to jump to a solution too quickly where we want to get to that that answer and this is, I mean, this is kind of the crux of, of, of design, design thinking, but, you know, empathy is key. Listening more than speaking is key. And I, I think that's also true in things like uh, product development and product strategy. We really got to figure out what are those questions to ask? Because on, on, to some degree, there's, there's just more opportunity there. Like, let's just keep asking, keep asking. And I, I think that gets at the crux of when people say there's, there's no bad idea. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of bad ideas, but to me, there's no bad idea when anything that's said could spark a thought in somebody else. So if, if Jay comes to me, he says, hey, Martin, I got this idea. And my initial thought is that sounds terrible, but what if, you know, at the end of my what if, if there's some genius there, Jay should get most of the credit for that genius. Well, that's, that's uh, very generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> so Eventbrite calls this R&D, which is kind of like an old corporate term. 
And all the fancy startups from the Valley are talking about innovation. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah, good question, right? And so innovation is one of those words where, you know, it's almost it's almost to the point of being cliche now. You know, if you say you're going to do something innovative, everyone's saying it, so it's it's almost inherently not even innovative to to use the word innovative. So it's it's almost lost all meaning. And uh, R and D, you know, is is kind of an older term. Um, the thing I like most about it is it it traditionally means research and development. I tend to play with what the 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 D stands for um, at Twitter. We actually put the research team within design. So R&D was, was still predominant at Twitter, but it, it was research and design. Um, at Eventbrite, we like to think about it beyond just research and development. It is predominantly a product engineering team, but uh, it is research and design. It's, it's, it's even things like research and diversity, research and data science. It's, it's, it's all the things where we're really thinking, how do we take a really holistic skill set, put them together, but... Um, I don't know if everyone would describe it the way I do, but the way I take the approach at a place like Eventbrite, uh, you know, which is getting a little bit larger now, is to be a safe place where there can be kind of a cultural catalyst within the company where a lot of the people in the organization are thinking about the opportunities that are right in front of us, like big opportunities about how does, you know, Eventbrite getting into Asia, Eventbrite thinking about places like Singapore, Eventbrite evolving its current platform so that it's beyond one size fits all and it can actually have something that's more adaptive to different cultural expectations like a place like Singapore. And, and, and that, that's where, you know, we'll say 95% of, of the people at Eventbrite are, are focused on these, these opportunities that are right in front of us, ripe for picking. We're the group that needs to think about all the things they're, they're not thinking about, all the things that, you know, to even suggest them seem off because, you know, you'd need to think about an Eventbrite that didn't exist today for them to even, even be real. Like if we were to say something radical, like, you know, what if Eventbrite got into online dating? Like that, that, that's so far from Eventbrite's business model today. But, um, you know, if you squint and you think, hey, you know, two people um, that are, if you found somebody who went to um, a Puggle meetup and a data science meetup, uh, it's probably a good chance you should introduce them to your friend Marty. He's, that person has these, these really interesting interests that match up uh, beyond what we see in things like Tinder or Bumble, where they predominantly just use um, Facebook interests. And you know, it's something like, hey, you like Goonies, and you like Goonies, you should meet. Who, you know, who doesn't like Goonies? Everyone likes Goonies. Everyone likes that really good restaurant in San Francisco. So those, those likes and those comparisons are starting to become more um, superficial. And it's something like Eventbrite where we can match you based on things you actually do, you actually went to. And we can even start to use like, you know, transactional history to say, hey, you actually bought a ticket to this kind of concert. Do you have an interest there? It doesn't just even have to be dating. It could just be matching people. You could, you could match uh, mentors with mentees. You could match, um, say, somebody who just moved to Atlanta. And let's say she's a, a woman uh, in the engineering field. And she would like to build her network of other uh, strong female engineers. But um, she just got there. She doesn't have a strong network. You know, what if we could match her with other people um, that, that had that matching that she wanted to meet with? Uh, you know, there's just the world of possibilities there that you can't see unless you start to unsee the product that we've, we've already built. Yeah, and I think that's kind of core to, um, to what people need to be doing as, um, air quote, innovators, is looking through what they see right in front of them to what's possible at some point in the future, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, again, Jay, you're going to have to stop me if I ramble because I, I can tell stories all day long. But I was I was crossing the street with my... <laughs> that's why uh, I asked you to be on the show, man. That's right. That's right. 
so, so you know, while while we might think about the radicals like like online dating and Eventbrite, uh, I, I, as you know, I'm I'm recently engaged in. And we're her Melissa and I were walking across the street, and uh, we were at an intersection walking my dog, and the 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 little walk sign says "Don't walk." But it's pretty late at night, and it's a it's, it's an area that kind of dies down after business hours, and there's no cars coming. And I look both ways, and I start to walk, and she grabs my hand and pulls me back because she sees the sign says "Don't go." And I thought this was a really interesting moment. One plus one to her, she's looking out for my well-being and safety, so you know, maybe maybe a good match. But um, what I thought was interesting is she was looking at, and, and this isn't a, a a good or bad thing. So I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to say I see the world one way, she sees a world different way. But I think both approaches are sound. She saw the world the way it is. She sees that the sign says "Don't go, you don't go," um, and I'm trying to, you know, per the job description, predict the way I think the world will be. I'm using the last, let's just call it 20 years of historical data from myself of crossing streets that I can look down the street and if I see a car, I can kind of predict that I'm going to make it to the other side safely before that car reaches me. And I'm not doing math on the fly. I'm not saying, hey, you know, what is their rate of speed? What is my distance to cross? And, you know, will will their point of intersection hit me before I make it? There's not some crazy trigonometry here. It's just a, it's a rough guess based on, you know, 20 years of crossing streets of saying, hey, I'm going to make it safely. So I just thought that that's, we see that in business a lot of, hey, I can see the world as it is and as it is right in front of me, but I can also see another world where, you know, it's pattern recognition. I've seen this scenario before. I can go forward even though, um, you know, signs tell me not to, and, and there's a good chance that I'm going to make it to the other side um, successfully. Yeah, that seems like a skill that's inherent to a lot of great designers is that um, observation of the world around them and the courage to go pursue something that they that might not be visible to other people, right? And so, you, um, you know, your career has kind of followed this trajectory of building things and then growing it to a certain point and getting acquired. So, talking about that pattern, what patterns have you seen in terms of uh, building design organizations or, or building products? that seem to be true across all those experiences from agency life to Twitter, to product life, to now Eventbrite? Yeah, biggest, biggest pattern so far, and this is going to sound cliche in 2019, so I think everyone's pretty hip to it now, but it is one of those ones where we're all aware, but we need to be reminded that um, talent is key. Our, our, our people, our teams, um, the one thing that always frustrated me at, at Twitter is they had all these signs that said, um, build a world-class product, and, and I always thought that was interesting because I I didn't want I, I thought that was that, that's a great insight for it's where they placed the sign they didn't place the sign amongst um, sort of um, all of the employees working at Twitter to build this world-class product they they put it where the executives roam and I my belief is that you know at that level they should really be focused on building world-class teams that can do world-class work in environments where that world-class work can lead to a world-class product. So, um, you know, that's always been the pattern. And that's how we started our, our first company. What we noticed back in 2005 going into 2006, you would have seen the same thing is there was this, there were two things happening at the same time. One, we started to see um, talented designers leave their day job to go out and create their, their own um, digital agency. I mean, we saw for the first time this, um, uh, mass creation of, of what we'd call like the small boutique agencies. Now today they're everywhere. And so it's, it's hard to remember there's a time where that didn't exist. And the only design agencies were really big conglomerates. Um, but what we, what we also saw at that time, if you looked at people's resumes, it was the very first time where they were at a job for like a year or two years. And that seemed to be um, an unhealthy pattern that was being created. And so 
my business partner and I, Alex, we just looked at that and said, why? Why, why are designers switching jobs every year? Is it because people are offering them more money? Is it because they're so egotistical that they think they can do better and they're moving on? Is it because designers are just naturally unhappy and they're hard to, to retain? And it just looked at the environments that they were working in um, weren't environments that were really sparking the thing they were looking for. And what they wanted was creativity. What they wanted was autonomy. What they wanted was to be able to explore and, and do things that are cliche now, like innovate and, and, and experiment. But, um, and it, but that seems like even here, you know, over a decade later, that that's still true. And, and talent, good talent, really uh, aspires to to seek that out. And so, for me, the, the the pattern there is is respecting the talent over over things that like the profit or the product, and then um, letting giving them the trust and respect to to flourish and to do the thing that we hired them to do, as opposed to feeling like we might need to micromanage them or might need to hold their hands. Yeah, and that's an important distinction is putting the talent ahead of the product, right? You're thinking about the people who are going to build the thing. It's kind of that old thing about hiring smart people and getting out of their way, right? You, you, you get smart people in the room, you give them a challenge, and then the product is a result of, of them going after that challenge. Yeah, that's exactly, that, that's exactly right. And so, you know, if I were to look at it, um, you know, we... We have we have we have no product without without the people to build the product, and so you know in order of operations, you know they're pretty high on the list. You you could make the argument you you have you can't pay the people without the customer, and you can't have the customer without the product. But um, that that isn't your customer to have without the people to build that product. That's just a, that's a customer for somebody else to have. And so I think some of our biggest differentiators, you know, in, in technology, it, it's always you know what is that proprietary thing that you're going to build, but one of the big differentiators is is a culture that we bring that lets great talent do great work. Because I'm a firm believer, you create an environment where great talent can do great work, you're going to have great results. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And that reminds me of something that you said, I, I don't know how many years ago um, that I latched onto and, and that I tell people is that um, in a lot of cases, like it's not our job to solve the customer's problem. It's our job to help the customer solve their customer's problem. Yeah, I, I, I still use this one today, the customer's customer. And yeah. I, you know, I, I just think one, it's, it's one of those, you know, it, it, it's got a good thing that makes you do like a mental stop. And you think, wait, customer's customer. Let me think through that for a second. But I also use it as a good conversation piece within the strategy sessions that we have every day. It's like, hey, stop for a second. Just pause. Um, we see this, you know, even, you know, in, in, at Eventbrite where we are so, our, our primary customer is the person that throws the event, the event creator. Um, but we forget that they are only throwing that event for the attendee. And so right. if we spend if we spend too much time on our customer, we're going to forget about what makes a really good attendee experience. And if we if we can make a better attendee experience, um, we're going to make a better event experience. And we're going to that is ultimately for the benefit of, of the creator. And so what we don't want is to just service the person trying to make money off throwing the event and not care about the customer. Or else you're going to see what we all saw with Fire Festival. Um, that that's a place where that was selfishly all about the person trying to throw the event, right? Like there's a right. balance there, but that that's a radical extreme where, hey, you know, it, we really need uh, to make sure that we are thinking about the attendee of the event almost as much as we're thinking about who we consider our primary customer to be the creator of the event. Yeah, well, that's like, you know, as Eventbrite, you know, of course you want to make the process of uh, setting up and managing an event as easy as possible, but you also want, that event organizer to look like a rock star to their 
attendees, like to make it super easy for those people to get a ticket, to show up, to check in, to do all that stuff so that they become, uh, I guess, loyal in a way to that event organizer or that venue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And that's, that, that was one of the primary theses for, um, you know, you had mentioned our, our, our last company, uh, Envite, was acquired by Eventbrite, but that was, that was kind of the differentiators. Hey, what if there was a world where you didn't, you didn't push your brand as heavily as you did the brand and experience of the organizer themselves? And what if right. you let the organizer take front and center to, to start to own that relationship a little bit more and have a little bit more of that, that, that brand clout? And that's something that, you know, Eventbrite was very excited about. That's, that's why we joined. And they're actually, um, it's, it's going to roll out pretty soon, um, you know, throughout the product, but it, it, it's, it's being tested right now in the Australian market. But the first iterations of the Eventbrite or the Envite product in Eventbrite uh, core offering, and they're, they're calling it Eventbrite Studio, but it, it actually just launched yesterday in, in uh, I think in, in test internally, and then they're going to actually roll it out to Australia in the next week or two, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's super exciting. Especially because you mentioned, uh, you know, wanting to pursue markets in Asia, right? So that can, it's going to give you a foothold on, you know, that part of the globe that you might be able to expand even further. Yeah. And again, I can talk all day long, but, you know, just in terms of um, internationalization, different cultures, I've just learned so much about Australia uh, over the last uh, few months, but it's a really interesting um, place where, you know, it's not even really a continent or a country because it really kind of breaks down to, to, to two big cities, Melbourne and Sydney make up 40% of the total population, but they have, um, their workers get paid uh, pretty well, their minimum wage is pretty high. And so there's a little bit higher um, disposable income. And so, you know, on Eventbrite's inventory, the tickets aren't $500 Hamilton tickets, you know, they are more reasonably priced. And so you end up getting a uh, Almost, uh, I think we we processed um, over 10 million tickets in in Australia, and the total population of Australia is 26 million. So that, that that's half of the population, which is pretty crazy. So it, it ends up just being a good place to test things in general. But but yeah, you're right. It, it being so close to the uh, Asian Pacific uh, area is, is helpful. Yeah, so an, another thing that you mentioned earlier was um, the R and D, and that the D can kind of shift depending on who you're talking to. That could be design, it could be development, it could be diversity, it could be a lot of other things. But the R is always in front. Is that is that intentional? Is that to mean that you're that you think about it as a research led initiative or a research led organization? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty big on, you know, data-centric uh, product development you know, in terms of a strategy. So you, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty big on you shouldn't go forward unless you got data that backs it up. Now, that being said, um, I am also a believer that that your gut and your instinct uh, and your experience is also in of itself data. So there are some times where, you know, as a team, we will go forward with our with our gut and what we believe our intuition tells us to do. But I'm, I'm considering that a data point too, uh, in, in addition to the actual, you know, quantitative research that we that we gather as well but yeah we we should we should we should develop some kind of general thesis based on on patterns that we're seeing and then we should we should try to back that up or validate that thesis before you know moving forward uh, too far yeah so how are you collecting that information and like how what are you doing to validate it or or to test it like what do you are there any frameworks or tools or systems that you're using uh, so yeah um well, we have a data scientist on our team, so you know, he, he's, he's the biggest asset because he'll, he'll be able to grab all that data, he'll be able to write models for us and, and, and show us 
um, things that we weren't able to see without the data. But the great thing about Eventbrite at, at this point uh, is that you know, there's over 12 years of data collection on you know, millions of events uh, with tens of millions of attendees and creators. And so we're able just to see massive amounts of, of patterns that we can, we can make inferences from. And then we'll also go on the ground and we have teams that will actually, you know, meet with, with because the other thing I heard the data is it can just tell us where the world was. It, it can't generally, or it, it can't, it's impossible for it to tell us where the world will absolutely go. We'll just have to make our own inferences and assumptions based on that. But, but yeah, we'll just start with our own data internally. And then um, we'll also, you know, just, you know, talk to human beings and we'll look for, for what's going on in the world. You know, a really good example that Eventbrite is starting to got, uh, become really good at is recognizing trends uh, before they become trends. Two really good examples are, um, and I don't know if this is big in um in Atlanta because it, it, it is San Francisco's its own weird little place, but goat yoga, goat yoga is a thing. Um, and it's a pretty popular thing. Uh, it, it's popular even beyond San Francisco, but um, Eventbrite was able to identify that trend pretty quickly because we saw that emergence in the words goat and yoga showing up together and uh, people, you know, gathering around these, these two combination of words that otherwise wouldn't have happened. Another thing too, that you may or may not be aware of, um, Princess parties are, are, are pretty big right now. Um, and I'd say they've been pretty big for the last couple of years, but um, you can, having a princess party, is, average tickets, like almost $300. It, it's a pretty big deal. And, and um, you know, kids' parties are, are pretty much all about uh, princesses there. And, and this is things that, you know, we're learning, we're seeing. What we do with that, you know, does, does Eventbrite double down on princesses and goats? You know, I, I don't know if that, that, that's where we go from there, but um, we do use that to start to look at where we think other patterns might emerge or just even how to understand patterns better in general. Yeah, so having the data scientist is obviously a, a giant asset because you know, as you were saying, you can see those emerging trends kind of before anybody else can, because you've got that visibility. Um, what do you do? Like if you didn't have the data scientist, like I imagine you did have a data scientist early on at, at, uh, at invite, like how did you validate that um, RSVP via Twitter was a thing that people would do and that they wanted to do? Yeah. You know, I'll even go you know, further back from that when we, when we started the first company include, um, there, you would have also remembered this because you were on the, the right side of the debate, but um, you know, when we were talking about things like web standards and people were throwing out words like HTML5, and there was a big debate there for a while between HTML5, XHTML 2.0, not to get too technical, but even Flash. You know, is Flash going to be the future? And, you know, it takes someone like Steve Jobs to go go um, on a keynote and say, you know, there will be no Flash in, in the iPad. And that was kind of a declarative moment for Flash's death. But you and I and people in our industry, we have to be on, we can't be um, working with hindsight. We have to be on the front lines of foresight. So we have to know that that's going to happen you know, a year or two before Steve Jobs makes it clear to the world that Flash is dead. And so it's a very difficult thing for us to try to try to figure that out. And the, the way that we'll often do it, um, even with the emergence of mobile, I mean, now to say mobile first, it's like, oh my God, I don't even want to hear those words because obviously it's mobile. We live in a mobile world, but there, there was a world before the iPhone, before the app store where um, people were having really strong debates and they were saying, hey, I don't think we should put time and attention into the mobile experience. And they were looking at their Google analytics and they were saying our analytics show that only 5% of our users use mobile. So we shouldn't build for mobile. We shouldn't think about mobile. And it turned out that, yeah, only 5%, but that's because that's the way the world was. And what the Google and it couldn't 
show them is that there was going to be this change and emergence of, of, of shift. And the way that we get in front of it is um, you know, we have to be, uh, it, it's classic people watching. We have to like be really keen on our environments. We have to see what people are doing, where the behaviors are going. And we have to be pretty keen on watching the early adopters. So I love the early adopters, not only because they adopt early, but to be an early adopter, if you really break that down, it's a really hard, I mean, it's an expensive um, uh, habit to have, but it's, it's a really, it's a hard life to live. If you were to cut the cable cord, again, saying cut the cable cord in 2019, you're rolling your eyes. But if you were to cut that cable cord in, in 2006, like many early adopters did, that means no sports, you know, that means that you're buffering. That means that you are waiting longer than you, you're cutting it because you don't like commercials, but you are buffering for longer than that would have taken to watch the commercial. But like, you know, you're living this hard life. If you were to have bought a, a, a Tesla two years ago, it means that, you know, you're often um, not able to go on, on, on long road trips. It means that, you know, you're having to charge for like an hour instead of filling up at a gas station for like five minutes before there's predominant uh, superchargers everywhere. Like it is, it is a rough, difficult life. But it, what's fascinating to me for the early adopters is you're watching them push through this, this more difficult existence. Um, and it's like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just take the easier route? And it's because that dedication to that and watching them do it and watching them do it with persistence tells me, okay, this probably is going to stick. And then there's something that's gonna happen here. And so the, the cable cord will get cut. Um, the electric car will, will take off uh, because they're not giving up. And when you see the early adopter do something and in mass, they start to give up on it. That's when you know it's a fat or a trend, and so so that 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 that's a big part in, in how we'll try to identify that without a data scientist. Yeah, sure. So a lot of it is is kind of intuition and relying on experience, but but also just um, just having the ability to kind of look at the trends and, and predict, like look at the the past trend line and predict where that's headed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I would say. This is almost yeah. all. We use pattern recognition to do it, but this, you know, we, we have to be future predictors. We gotta, yeah. we so gotta take our best across the street. That's right. That's right. And, and, and you know, yeah. Can I predict the future? No. But all I need to do is be better than a coin toss. Am, am I? Am I fifty-one percent right? Um, that's the bare minimum I could ask for. Because I need to be right more than I am wrong. Um, and as long as that continues to be to be true, you know, we'll do good things. But yeah, we're we're going to be wrong. And when we're wrong, this is a whole different conversation. But um, you know, fail fast and pivot quickly and, you know, be able to uh, adapt and make sure that any strategy you take never 100% doubles down on a particular strategy, but, you know, you're able to put your toe into it enough that even if you're wrong, um, conceptually, you're on the right path. Right. Another friend of mine um, had this phrase, and I don't know if he uses it a lot, but um, he said when he thinks about a an, an app or a service or a product or anything like that. And he's, he's kind of an early stage investor. He's built a couple of companies. He says, he likes to think, is there any view, version of the future where this does not exist? And if the answer is no, like every version of the future has some 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 type of, of thing like this, some some kind of iteration of this idea, well, then it's a no-brainer. You have to do it, even if it's like really far out. Yeah, no, absolutely. So from, from the R&D standpoint at Eventbrite, that's, that's how we approach the, um, the engineering aspect of it. I look at 
somebody wants to test something. And uh, let, let, let's go back to the, the, the radical example of a, of a dating app. Let's say Eventbrite's going to put out its own dating app. And a lot of you are thinking that sounds like a terrible idea. It's never going to work. Nobody's going to care. There's too many of them. The markets, for that. I don't care about all that. All I want to know is I'm, I'm actually, as the head of R&D, I'm less interested in the actual dating app and people using it. What I want to know, because that may or may not work, right? And let's just say that most people are going to say greater chance it doesn't work than it does work. That's not the question here. The question here is what are the things that need to be built into a dating app and are those guaranteed to live the test of time? Do Does Eventbrite need peer-to-peer communication? Do we need attendee to be able to communicate with one to another? That has to exist in the dating app because if we match, we're going to chat before we meet up. So at a baseline, that's a known known. We know that has to happen. So let's build that regardless of the, if the dating app works or not. Um, do we need uh, user-generated content? Should uh, uh, attendees be able to upload photos and videos? You'd need that for a dating app. I need to be able to see you before I swipe on you. Um, so that's another known known. We need, Eventbrite at its core needs this. So let's build that. So we're actually, when I look at something like, you know, radical, like, like, like a dating app, it's not whether we should or we shouldn't. It's what are the 15 to 50 pieces that would have to make that successful? And how many of those are guaranteed to be here no matter what? And if that's, if, if there's a high level of those, then we should definitely build this thing. And if you call it a dating app, I don't care. All I care is that you built the right things that are most likely here uh, um, and it's irrefutable. Right. So uh, as you think about what those things are um, in context of a dating app, and I have a feeling that you're going to have to put out a disclaimer that Eventbrite is not entering the dating app. <laughs> <place. laughs> we, just... we, uh, we should have done this yesterday, so it's Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so with that disclaimer in place, um, as you, as you think through like what those things are, like how much of that is driven in your mind, how much of that is driven by a need that you see certain people having? Like there's a group of people out there that have this need that's going unmet. How can we as an organization, whether that's Eventbrite or Twitter or Nine Labs or Include or, or anybody else, how can we as an organization build something that satisfies that need? Like how, how much does that stay front of mind for you as you're thinking about all these other uh, facets of building things? Yeah, you know, I, it, it, I mean, it, it's paramount. If there if there's no need, why do it? Um, and I would say there's two pieces to that. One is if, if there, there's no immediate need, you know, why do it? But we also have to be as as, as you know, future predictors. We have to figure out what the future need might be. Um, so a really good topic right now is what happens when there is 5G on on on, on mobile devices. Uh, you know, that's a hundred times the speed we have today. And the most people that I talk to that that you know, I wouldn't hire for an R&D capacity, their immediate thing would be, well, my phone's already fast. Why would I need a hundred times that? And what they're not thinking is, I don't care. It's what would we build? Like, like what, what can you not even think of that exists today that could exist when your phone is 100 times faster connecting right. to the internet than it is today? And then what all that's going to do when, when people start building for that, that's going to push Apple in, 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 in Google to um, accelerate making sure that our batteries last longer. And now you got to ask yourself, what happens when your iPhone is 100% waterproof, has a battery life of 48 hours, and is 100 times processing the internet faster than it is today? That is a fascinating world that none of us can really predict what an app or it, 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 see, we're going to create these unique apps that, that take advantage of that. And those unique apps are going to force new devices. And there's going to be some new device in our hand that doesn't exist that we can't even think about because of something like, like, like 5G. Right. Or flexible screens for that matter. 
Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, what happens when and these are the things that like, that's tough, because, yeah, we're, we're realistically five years away from there being sort of uh, mass rollout and adoption of something like 5G and the devices being able to, to keep up with them. Because a lot of devices are still, I mean, people are still rock around, with, you know, five years from now, still an iPhone XS, that, that even though it gets 5G, it can't even, the processor within the device, you know, couldn't even handle it. So the, the, the internet will be faster than the device itself, which It'll be a fascinating time, but uh, we got five years, and so you know the big question at large organizations: um, we got a lot of opportunity in front of us today. Why are we investing time and energy into something that's five years out? And then that's that's for each of us to answer. You know, do we want to be how many how many examples and case studies do we have where people got left behind? There's the classics: Blockbuster versus Netflix, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, BlackBerry versus Apple. But uh, you know, do we? Do we think that that's a possibility that's going to happen to us? And should we should we be a little bit more um, reactive than than uh, or proactive than reactive? Right. So that brings me um, to another thought that I'm keen to get your insight on is as designers and as people who are responsible for bringing a lot of the new tech and you know, new capabilities into the world, like how much of that uh, burden or how much of that responsibility is ours to say no? Or we're not going to create a thing that can do X just because it's profitable in the short term. Like we're not going to create a system that could potentially harm somebody or that has these implications that we might not think would happen, but it's possible they could happen. How much of it is on us to say, nope, not going to do that. We're going to make it another way. We're going to make it a way that is um, more sustainable and more kind of responsible to society at large. Yeah. So that's uh that's a, so this is more of i I'm going to answer more from a personal standpoint. So disclaimer, this is not a Brett's views on the world, but this is more of like an ethical conversation about, um, you know, this is a, the Spider-Man thing with great power comes great responsibility. And if we're the ones writing the code, um, it, is, is it us to ultimately say, no, I refuse to. Um, my belief is that if anything, if anything ever is to be possible, then it, it, it will be possible. It will exist. And so just because one, one developer in one company says, puts their foot down and says, no, um, that's not going to stop it from existing. Uh, it, it, it will happen. Um, you know, we, we kind of saw this with like, you know, the greatest worst thing ever made was, you know, when, when, when they were working on, on the atom bomb and, um, you know, we started to figure out, you know, does it did, did Oppenheimer, um, could he have gotten there and did he put his foot down and did he, did he, did he actually delay the Germans from, from, from getting there first? Uh, you know, in that particular case, what happens if the Germans get there first, but, but regardless, um, it doesn't stop the creation of it. Uh, it happens because, because the second that it was deemed possible, then it will be possible. So then I started thinking, you know, with, with tech and with things like, uh, Cambridge Analytica, um, if Cambridge Analytica hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. Um, and so that, that's just an unfortunate before we act because we're never all going to collectively agree not to do the bad thing. I think it is now we are the stewards. So that, that's more like industry wide, wide, right? Can we, can we stop Cambridge Analytica from happening? No, that's going to, that's going to occur. There's always going to be bad actors now within our own organizations. Absolutely. And we're already seeing that right? we're seeing uh, the more these things come to light, you're seeing people like Google, um, you know, they're standing up uh, together and saying like, no, we, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't build that. Um, I do believe it is, the, the greatest thing that we have going into 2019 is the, the increased um, respect and understanding of, of the actual execution in our profession. So we're, not, we're no longer as designers and engineers just uh, told to, to, to go make someone else's idea. I know a lot of people listening here are saying, hey, I still feel that way, but it is changing. And um, it, is, it is now our place to be able to um, better contribute to the strategy of things. And, and I'm under the belief that 
you have to do that um, at, in all facets of your career. The first time you speak up to your boss or those, those that might be higher on that corporate ladder should not be when you're telling them that you refuse to do something, that we shouldn't do something. You sh that, that, that moment that you have that great um, uh, courage to stand up, that should have been on the backs of you telling, giving us insights on how to have made the product better you know, over the last year where you said, hey, what if we did this? What if we did that? Because um, it is hard to take someone as seriously when, when they only made that one stance that one time. And it's such a dramatic stance. You just say, hey, I refuse to. Whereas, oh yeah, no, like, you know, um, you've made, you know, really good points several times. So we should, we should listen to you. So I, I just, should, I just don't want it to be so binary where we, we hold in all of this aggression and rage and we wait for that one moment where we say, no, I refuse. Because these things never happen that way. Uh, any of the bad things that happens, there are little bits of code and little bits of interface that get, um, that compound on top of each other. And so it is for us to identify them pretty early on. Nobody ever walks into a board meeting and says, hey, I've got an evil plan. It is a thousand little steps over three years that came together that allowed somebody to do something that we, we might disagree with after the fact. Right. And so as, as designers in that organization, it's, um, it's kind of our responsibility to make sure that we never get to that point, right? That we don't allow that death by paper cut to get to the point where you have to stand up and, and have the big dramatic uh, scene where you say, no, I'm not going to build that little thing. Yeah. And I say it's, just, it's every day in every conversation of, you know, always pushing what, for, what you believe is, is best for the end um, user customer of whatever you're doing. And that should ultimately be what wins. It shouldn't be a, a question of profits or not profits, because if we're doing what is right or what is best, you know, isn't profitable, we should go back to the strategy and rethink, hey, maybe we should rethink about, because there isn't, it isn't binary on the profit side either. There isn't only one way to make profit. Somebody just came up with a plan and we started executing that, that plan before we thought about all the implications. And now that you've identified one of the implications that wasn't identified early on, this is a moment to, to, to breathe, stop and go back and say, hey, we might need to reconsider thinking about the plan and you know how we go about this. Because there are a million ways to, to skin this cat. There are a million ways to get to profitability. It doesn't have to be this one way that now has negative, unethical consequences and we have to keep pursuing. I think that we see that a lot on, on, at that higher end of the ladder where uh, you, know, you, you create this amazing strategy, you write this nine-page doc, and then it feels uneditable. We just have to go forward. And I think that comes back to the, the resourcefulness and the leanness of, 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 of our, our profession of, hey, we have to be um, willing to be flexible. We have to be able to pivot. And we have to reevaluate the strategy. We even have to reevaluate the metrics. Maybe even like what you thought we should hit, you thought we should do a million dollars in sales and that's why we went down this path. Maybe it's time to say, hey, maybe we should only do 900,000 in sales because of these other things. And it's not a bad thing. Like none of these things were ever locked in stone. Right. Cool. Well, I know you got to get to your work day. So uh, let's, we can go ahead and wrap it up here. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're working on, say, hey, um, maybe when they want to build that dating app with you, like what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to build that Twitter follower, you know, but uh, Twitter, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active and uh, I'm just, it's Marty with an S, so Smarty, at Smarty. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm on it all day long. I still tweet three or four times a day. I, I looked at my, my stats and I think on average, I, I tweet 6.7 times a day, which is pretty sad. But then, but that means that if you tweet at me or you DM me, you're going you're, you're gonna to get a response faster than if you were to email, text, or do anything else to me. 
All right. Twitter's the spot. Look for Smarty on Twitter. Hey, man, thanks for being on the show. Um, I'll see you in a couple of weeks in Austin. That's right. That's right. We can, we can talk more about innovation and disruption. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, sounds good, man. Thanks again, yeah. and uh, take care. All right. Take care, man. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, good design is good business.